Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. Today, I'm speaking to Director of Sports Science at the Canadian Sports Institute Calgary, Matt Jordan. Thanks for tuning in to episode 283 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. So another part two coming up in this episode with Matt Jordan. So Matt came on in the early days, so in the first 50 episodes, and we discussed this in the uh, in this episode today. So I get Matt's take on a couple of things that were discussed back then, but, but obviously get his updated views on it. We went into some, some significant depth on uh, jump analysis to inform decision-making, and that was based off a couple of questions from a number of listeners on Twitter, which I put the, the question out that I was talking to Matt, and uh, if anyone had any questions, they could they could post them in. So that was the, this conversation was built around them questions, with obviously some uh, some added extras in there as well. So oh, for all those people that did send in questions, really really appreciate that, and uh, and thank you very much. Get yeah, a little shout out on the podcast with Matt. So in this podcast, as well as the jump analysis to inform decision making, which does form the the bulk of this episode, we discuss RSI and whether that's an overlooked metric to collect um, and, and is often favoured for more sexier uh, approaches. But we also discussed identifying deceleration qualities from jump testing and get some book recommendations from Matt, which everyone loves uh, right at the end. So I absolutely love this chat with Matt. It makes me makes my brain frazzle when speaking to Matt, um, which is uh, which is definitely a good thing. So an episode I'm sure you'll love. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by Kitman Labs. So Kitman Labs partners with leading sports teams to help them consistently achieve the highest levels of performance by increasing the impact of their data. So over 200 teams across the globe rely on Kitman Labs' performance intelligence platform to quantify the cost of performance and injury and receive the right insights at the right time. Through unique outcome-driven analytics and the most advanced athlete management system, teams can align their organizations around a shared view of what it takes to drive performance and health and move at the speed of sport to adjust and continuously improve. If you want to know more about Kitman Labs, head over to www.win.kitmanlabs.com forward slash impact. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by iMeasureU. So used by leading sports practitioners and biomechanics researchers worldwide to capture and compare multi-limb inertial data in the field, IMU Step from iMeasureU is a dual sensor and app lower limb load monitoring tool which helps practitioners optimize return to play for running based sports. So iMeasureU have just released their new and improved waterproof sensor Blue Trident, which includes ultra high G capabilities to quantify high impact steps such as cutting, landing and sprinting, longer battery life to collect data all day, real-time feedback to aid immediate interventions and faster workflow so practitioners can review long training sessions within minutes of training completion. I Measure You, now part of Vicon, works with military, pro and collegiate coaches and athletes from around the world, including the Australian Institute of Sport, US Department of Defense and collegiate and pro teams from around the world. If you want to get to know more about I Measure You, head over to their website, imeasureyou.com or follow them on Twitter or Instagram at imeasureyou. So without further ado, over to the episode with Matt Jordan. 
Thanks for tuning in to the Pace Performance Podcast. So this afternoon, I am delighted to welcome four and a half years after part one for a part two with Matt Jordan. So welcome to the podcast, mate. Thanks, sir. Great to be here. Appreciate the opportunity. No, it's a pleasure. Thank you for coming on again. So just a bit of an update since last time. Um, I'd, I'd encourage people to, if you're on a bit more in-depth, just so we don't have to go into the too much of the depths and the weeds as we did last time. So I encourage people to go back, I think it was number 45, to get more in-depth mm-hmm. uh, background on Matt. But a bit, of a, a bit of an update from 2015, August 2015. What's changed? Um, you know, I'm trying to think uh, back to where I was at at that point. Um, you know, lots changed in my personal life. Uh, you know, full family now. I had an, another son a few years after that. Um, so life is busy and full of, uh, full of, uh, lots of, lots of excitement. Um, and then professionally, I mean, I think the big thing since then is, um, we continue to push forward with our ACL return to sport research at the Canadian sport Institute Calgary. It's one of four Olympic training centers in Canada. It's a big passion of mine. And I think it's badly needed, especially in the sports that I work in, which are are high risk sports for injury, like alpine ski racing and snowboarding. And we've actually got some football players, proper European football soccer players that are in the city now with our professional team and, you know, uh, our professional hockey team as well. You know, ACL injuries seem to be, you know, uh, they're they're definitely not dropping off. So we're busy with research on those fronts um, with my graduate students and our research team. And in addition to that, I still get on the floor uh, working with athletes. I, I mean, I would say these days, you know, if, if I'm, uh, it's my, it's my passion. It's where my heart, uh, it's where I, it's where my heart lives is, you know, on the floor with athletes and coaching and actually in the trenches. Um, so I have about four or five athletes I program for. They're all athletes coming back after relatively serious injuries. So working with my, my team and, and trying to get them back healthy and safe. And that's, uh, that's my day to day. And uh, as much as I can reaching out to the community and getting into mentorship uh, opportunities with other strength coaches and trainers and, and, uh, you know, I love, I love, uh, love meeting new people and, and, and uh, collaborating with, with friends around the world doing various projects. So I've got a few irons on the fire there that are fun. And yeah, that's about it. Nice way. So the mentorship, is that an official thing? Is that that you're mentoring other people? Yeah, well, you know, I, it, it, I'll be honest, like right from the very start of this all, I can remember when I wanted to become a strength coach, I, I, I always say, uh, I mentioned his name just because, you know, he was, he was important in my growth. And, and, that, and I realized that, you know, as, as time went on, this individual, uh, you know, was definitely more on the sort of commercial uh, fitness side of things. But Charles Pollockin was was a strength coach here when I when I showed up to Calgary way back. And you know, I had no clue about becoming a strength coach. And when I met Charles, it was like, it was like, how do you get in the club here? Like, what, what do you got to do? I, I, you know, he, he was uh, super helpful to me and, and got me kind of rolling and, you know, pointed me in the right direction. But I always said to myself, you know, if, if, if ever I make it into a position here, I want to create a better pathway for young strength coaches. So, um, because I love teaching and I love mentorship. Uh, that's always been a huge passion of mine. And um, right from the very beginning, I was running internships and practicums at the university and, and um, you know, uh, you know, teaching. I teach a class at the University of Calgary. I've got um, an internship that we run at the Canadian Sport Institute Calgary, where every summer we bring in two to three strength coaches for a paid internship. It's actually kind of cool. They, they, they literally get uh, you know, a, a paid opportunity in the summer. And then, uh, we select a few of them to come on to our team to become scholarship strength coaches under me as a, a graduate student, uh, work with myself and Walter Herzog at the university of Calgary. We, we co-supervise them. So that's been a huge growth area in mentorship. And then 
Um, through my website, jordanstrength.com, I also provide mentorship opportunities and online education. Um, and that's growing. I, I, ha- I, have to, I have to admit, it's been, <clears throat> it's been, it's a lot of work to get online education right. And I'm trying to figure out, you know, the, the issue is that what I like to do isn't exactly scalable. I, I actually prefer to get to know people and to actually connect with them on their journey. Uh, and I mean, me, myself, I want to do that. But I know that from a scalability standpoint, that's kind of tough. Um, so I'm focused more on providing, you know, quality and, and sort of revamping my online education courses over the next few months to make them a little bit more adult learning friendly and uh, hopefully uh, continue to connect with coaches around the world and, and uh, be a part of their growth and, and, and vice versa. I get I get a lot of growth out of that myself. So, yeah. Nice. I know there's a few similar things popping up from various strength coaches around the world but in terms of making that a bit more of a personal experience and this is definitely not on the list of things we're going to chat about but I'm really interested to know how are you going to make that happen how are you going to give that personal touch to the the guys that are in your in the group yeah I mean it's you know it's it's an interesting um it's an interesting question and, and and if I had it figured out I would I would give you a really concise answer um, at the moment, um, I, I, I guess what what I'm trying to do is number one at this stage in the in the growth of it is to to keep the the numbers manageable in any given course. It's number one. Um, number two, uh, do my best to create opportunities online where we can get together and have have opportunities for discussion, uh, group discussions that that hopefully are solidifying learning opportunities and 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 bringing the bringing a community together. And, um, yeah, I mean, moving forward, I think that's, that's where I'm really focusing my efforts on, on growth is just making sure that, you know, via online opportunities with either, you know, uh, web conferencing and, uh, forum type, uh, opportunities to, to try to create the dynamic so that, um, you know, I, I build some relationships and, and, you know, it's important to me. So I guess at the end of the day, I, I really like to build relationships with the people that take courses with me and, um, I think that um, I just I do my best to to connect and and to stay connected over time. Um, that's it's important to me. Nice way. So one thing that you've been or become very well known for um, is jump analysis, and this is something that I put out on Twitter and Instagram about firing questions to me. And uh, really yeah. thankful that a few people um, took me up on that because I'm always keen to to hear what people want to hear from the likes of yourself who who come on the podcast. But just before we do get into them, where did that where did that interest come from? Is it something that was born out of necessity and it's just become a road that you've gone down, or was that a a conscious decision that this is something I'm really interested in, I'm gonna pursue it and it just happens to have helped in your day-to-day world as well? Uh, you know, I mean it, I think it starts with you know, it starts with this notion that I think that what we do is is more than just um, it's more than just art, right? It's more than just sitting down and, you know, designing a program like I would design a room for aesthetic appeal. I think that there's a science to what we do. And um, given the fact that there's a science to what we do, I've always been in the, in the, in the business of trying to figure out how to, how to measure the things that matter. <clears throat> and I can remember, <clears throat> excuse me, starting out early in my journey and, and I would be teaching all these concepts in these uh, internships and practicums that I was running, you know, how to, you know, various, various strength abilities. And, and, you know, uh, the reality was when we went into the gym, uh, we just really struggled to uh, implement a lot of those, um, a lot of those tests and, uh, and to really kind of figure out the things that matter. And I mean, the bottom line at the time is 
our systems were pretty crude and, you know, we couldn't tighten up the measurement error and we were, you know, there was a lot of things that were, were, were getting in the way. <clears throat> and I was super fortunate that um, in 2008, I was down at a conference in Colorado Springs and two things happened. Number one, um, I was touring the USOC and I met Bill Sands and Bill toured us around their facilities. And he, he's a great guy. You know, his, his, uh, I can remember this so distinctly. He said, you know, in the morning coaches come to me with questions you know, and it might be, let's say, a boxing coach saying, "Hey, I want to, I want to explore two techniques for throwing a cross. Can can we can we evaluate which one's best for this athlete?" And and Bill said, "You know, my goal is to you know to provide an answer for him for the end by the end of the day." And so I was like, "Ah, oh, that's just brilliant." And then he's touring his, his around his lab, and he's got all this stuff in there that I wouldn't say it was traditional strength training testing equipment. You know, it was these weird you know, colors and plasticky looking things. And I was like, what, where do you get all this stuff? He said, Oh, uh, Pasco. And I was like, what's Pasco? He said, it's a, it's a company in the States that provides um, equipment for physics classes. And um, it's super affordable and uh, we've assessed their, their validity and, and, and reliability and, and they work pretty good. And so he showed me a dual force plate system that he was using. And that had been the rate limiter for us in Canada. I just didn't have the budget for, for buying good equipment. And when we got back to Calgary, uh, my, my friend Scott Ma and I, we, we, we legitimately you know, went on the Pasco website. And for, I think, three grand, we bought a license. We bought two force plates and we bought the adapters that we needed. And you know, that was kind of the first time that I, I guess I got equipment that, that I could that I, that I could you know, that I could really tighten up in terms of being able to, um, you know, uh, tackle measuring those small minute changes that we're trying to find in elite athletes. And in addition to that, um, at that same conference, uh, I met Per Agard and Per gave a great talk on, um, you know, at, at the time he was, uh, you know, looking around injuries and, and aging and athlete performance. And he gave this great presentation where, he talked about the vertical jump, and as, as, as everyone also knows, Pear is well known for um, uh, researching in the area of rate of force development, but he provided this great presentation talking about rate of force development and also talking about jump analysis. And my mind kind of got blown up because whereas I would only traditionally looked at jump height as being my main outcome measure from a jump and using it as much as I could, Pear really broke it down into a bit more nuance and uh, you know, at that point, it's it was it was kind of crystal to me. I, I, a pair is a, a beautiful human being, and um, he's a guy that when I decided that I wanted to do my PhD, I, I instantly reached out to him and and uh, you know asked if he would be a part of my PhD committee. And and uh, so to answer your question, the the journey into the vertical jump, you know, was kind of two things, and 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 pair had a big thing to do with that. And and getting those Pasco force plates was really a, a transition for for me as well. I bet Pasco could not didn't know what they were getting themselves into with the whole sports science community going, getting, trying to get involved. <laughs> I don't, I know. And you know, what's so funny is that I, I, I reached out to them at several points, um, you know, early on, I, I was like, I don't know if you realize, but I think you guys could pr- probably provide um, a really valuable service here to the community. And, and I reached out to the Canadian distributor and the American distributor. And, you know, I honestly didn't hear much back. They just, I think they were like, eh, well, whatever, you know, we do what we do, you do what you do. And if it's working for you, great. Um, but, you know, since that time, I mean, um, you know, it's, I, I just know that from an affordability standpoint and also, you know, um, I guess dovetailing off, off that time frame. I know a lot of coaches who, who've picked those up as their sort of uh, first 
first purchase, you know, because you can actually get in, you can actually go in there with a few grand and come out with something that's half decent. So you would, have you moved away from Pasco and gone elsewhere? Mm. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we, we, we have for sure. I mean, we, the big, the big, the Pasco plates are, I think they work really well. Um, you know, we, we, uh, but, but they're almost like consumables. Yeah. Um, you know, they're, they're quite small. You, you obviously, if you, if you have, and this is actually a, a paper that we, we, uh, we, uh, contributed to the Aspatar medical journal. They've got a, an, an edition coming out here. This actually looks great. I've, I've seen a sneak peek of it. I hope, hope Paul Reed's not upset for me for kind of plugging this, but, um, it's going to be handed out at the IOC medical, uh, conference, injury prevention conference in Monaco. And it's, uh, it's a great, it looks like a great, um, a great addition with just, you know, I'd say a good, a good overview of ACL return to sport testing. And, <clears throat> and I, I mean, I, I, I it's, it's like super, it's a super, um, well put together, uh, addition. So a big congrats to Paul Reed for pulling that together. It's amazing. Uh, but we, we actually put forward a, um, a paper for that. And what we were doing is, um, and much kudos to, uh, two strength coaches in our, in our, uh, training center, Graham Chalice and Mike Lane, Graham, uh, you know, a super unsung hero in the world of sports science at our Institute, at least he's, he's a, he's a brilliant guy and just contributes, um, huge knowledge to our, our Institute. But Graham had this idea about, uh, sort of weekly calibrations of the Pasco plates to see if we could actually watch them start to go off. And, and basically, long story short is you have a hard impact on a corner um, and then suddenly, you know, at the high load end, you have a pretty clear distortion in, in the accuracy of the plate. Um, you know, on, on the order of, let's say it starts off four or five, six percent, but then that loss of accuracy sort of becomes exponential over the next series of, se- of sessions. And what we put in the paper was this idea of the confusion region where at the high end of the operating range of the Pasco plate, you know, your, your, your error might be 15, 20%, which is pretty obvious if you're measuring, you know, 3000 newtons and you're off that much, you're like, Oh, something's wrong here. But the challenge with that, because the error is kind of exponential that when you're in the range of forces that you measure in jumping, your error is kind of in the neighborhood of three to 4%, which is just enough that you think it's a physiological change. It's easy to miss. Um, so long story short is we, we made that mistake several times. I did personally with the Pasco plates and yeah, since we've moved on and we've got a nice strength lab with good equipment and, um, you know, a nice setup and, and, uh, we, but we still use a Pasco plate actually on our, we have a, a isometric leg press that we built and it's a, a rig that we modeled after a hammer leg press. Um, and we mounted a Pasco plate to it and I'll be honest with you, it works great. Um, it's a, it's a really nice setup for being able to measure, isometric uh, leg leg extension force and rate of force development so it's we still got one in operation nice so that'd be something for people who've got pascos to be very aware of and something that this paper may help with yeah i think it's i think it's definitely something to be aware of and you know my best advice is that if you are if you're using it for biofeedback, let's say, and it's and it's a relatively, I know Eric Renigan just put out a, a some posts on on social media recently talking about biofeedback. They were great, actually. I, I couldn't agree more. I think being able to provide biofeedback, especially in return to sports scenarios, it's a great way to enhance training and to to sort of bridge the gap between you know um, someone's current state and, and how you're sort of pushing them towards you know more. Uh, a better a better state for return to sport um so biofeedback maybe it's not such a concern 
But for sure, if you're looking to make decisions off of this or, you know, publish papers or whatever, it's, it's important probably to calibrate these before every session just to make sure that they're not going squirrely on you. Mm-hmm. Cool. So one of the questions that came in, this is this is probably going to form maybe form the next probably 20 minutes, half an hour of our, of our chat yeah. around jump analysis. And this comes from uh, Martin Bushai, a guy that you know very well. Oh, yeah. yeah. And yes the the first the first point i want to um go to if we can is around asymmetries and the ukca their bank of videos from previous ukca conferences is a great resource of mine to do a little bit of research before speaking to people so rewatched yours from 2015 2016 something like that um a lot of the talk in there was around asymmetries and this is something that has become um well talked about, especially the guys sure. at Middlesex and Chris Bishop and, and Paul yeah. Reed, um, who, you've, mm-hmm. who you've mentioned already. But would you be able to give us a bit of a an overview of your input in into the kind of asymmetries arena, and then we'll uh, we'll kind of dive into uh, a little bit more around that topic in particular. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the I think the first <clears throat> the first notion is that you know using a, a limb symmetry index, let's say for looking at lower body strength um, or rate of force development. A limb symmetry index is a common way to report and to contextualize um, an individual's, um, you know, side to side strength levels, you know, to identify if there's one side obviously lower than the other. And having uh, worked uh, very closely with Walter Herzog, who's um, a, uh, one of our, uh, one of the, greatest researchers I know in biomechanics. Uh, I went back to quite a few of his papers back in the 80s and 90s where Walter was um, looking at movement asymmetries. <clears throat> Sorry about that. Um, looking at movement asymmetries. And, and that was sort of a, the, the beginning point of my, uh, my, a lot of my PhD work. And it was interesting when I, when I, when I compared, uh, let's say, an inner limb asymmetry and strength versus a movement asymmetry, you know, talking with Walter about this, we always had this notion that, you know, let's be honest, you're always asymmetrical. You're never perfectly symmetrical. That's the whole point, right? Like you're, you're variable in how you move. And, and, and geez, if you were perfectly symmetrical every single time you put your foot on the ground, it seems to me like you would have a, you know, a sort of a restricted bandwidth for being able to cope with, you know, various movement challenges and, and, and uh, the, the requirement that you have some variability to be able to respond to a changing world that we live in. And so, you know, Walter and I often would would talk about this notion of asymmetry, and we said, well, I mean, it's kind of kind of it's kind of a, a, a funny question because you're measuring something that actually is there all the time. And but but I guess the point around a movement asymmetry is that you know if if if, if you're if you're running a if you're running a a study and you've got a hundred non injured individuals. Um, and, and they don't participate in sports where, you know, uh, an asymmetry would be, um, would be, uh, let's say part of performance. Let's just say, you know, it's just a, you know, average individual. Uh, we'd always say that our hunch would be that, uh, movement by movement. So cycle by cycle, you would, you would, you would always have a certain degree of asymmetry, but then if you looked on average, you know, it would probably wash out that, you know, if you're a little bit more on the left side for, you know, one jump or one stride, it would be a little more on the right for the next one. And you'd kind of wash out to being roughly symmetrical. And so um, at the starting point of, of looking at, uh, at at asymmetries, it was, it was uh, legitimately trying to capture this notion of movement asymmetry. And the reason that that, that was of interest to me is that in my, in my, 
beginning here with these dual force plates, these Pasco plates, one of the most valuable things I found as a coach at the time, because again, I'd be rehabilitating athletes coming back after injury is that, you know, I could put them on here squatting or jumping. And it was really actually helpful for me to see the left versus right forces. And when I compared somebody who was hurt to somebody who wasn't, there was clear differences in the signal and, and clear differences in the magnitude of the asymmetry. So um, as a coach, it was a very pragmatic tool. Now I could actually generate what, what I would call like training hypotheses, right? You'd be like, okay, so I've measured this left to right asymmetry. It's different from what I see in non-injured individuals. And then you could strategize on a program to address this, 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 uh, this gap. And, you know, through time, you'd be able to evaluate if your hunch was right or wrong. Um, and, and, and to see if you could actually impact the, uh, the, the, the asymmetry that was measured. So it's, it's a very, for me, a very, I guess two things are, are of importance is number one, I started very organically with asymmetries as a coach. And I still use that very organically as a coach, the idea that, you know, I'm trying to back up my eye, you know, typically coaches rely on their eye and their guts. And, and this was a way that I could, I could back that up, especially around injured athletes. And then secondly, this notion of, um, you know, we're, we're always asymmetrical and, and where does, where does sort of a problem, when, where does the problem start? You know, so where do we transition from what we would say is typical asymmetries that we see in, um, normal humans to, you know, and by normal, I'm sorry, that's probably a bad word, but let's say non-injured athletes or, or individuals who are not in a specific sport setting where asymmetries would be prevalent. Um, so when does, when do you start to graduate into a, a zone of, of, of there being, um, something that's atypical and something that is important to, to look at. So that's, uh, that's kind of a bit of the, the history of it. And, and uh, you know, honestly, to this day, I don't know that there's really anything inherently special about an asymmetry other than, other than, you know, it's, um, it's a way to kind of characterize, uh, characterize an individual's um, uh, left versus right abilities. So is there anything and this is horrendously general and, and apologies for that. But is there any certain threshold that people should be aware of in that zone of this is okay to this is starting not to be okay? Yeah, I, I think I think that, you know, and and you know, I, I wanna just sort of mention you mentioned Paul Reed and, and Chris Bishop and, and others that uh, have been diving into this. And I think they've raised some really important points. Um, you know, one 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 critical piece is how do you calculate that asymmetry index? When you're doing, let's say, a single leg movement versus a bilateral movement, and I think those they they they've raised some important considerations, and I think that um, for all the listeners out there, I would say that um, it is probably more than trivial in terms of how you just how you calculate that index. So maybe I'll start by prefacing that you know the way we're calculating our index, and 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 uh, I think that Paul and, and Chris maybe maybe would would ha would some of the recent work would probably. Uh, warrant us maybe rethinking how we calculate, but at the end of the day, we, we've got, you know, we just, we, we have a sort of a, something that's working for us in our center. Um, the way we calculate that is by taking the right leg minus the left leg divided by the max of the left or the right. So basically that means that in a bilateral jump, it's truly a, a right versus left comparison. It's not a right versus total force or what's the right leg contributing to the total force. It's truly, how does the right compare to the left in terms of that, um, uh, uh, in terms of the, 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 the impulse, which is the area underneath the force time curve over discrete time phases. So with that notion in mind, um, you know, all I can say is that the, now we're, we're at a stage, I think in our, in our, in our, um, 
in gathering jump tests from from athletes in our, our training center where we're probably up on you know we've got to be getting close to a hundred thousand individual jumps uh, uh, on on our winter sport athletes alone and uh, when we sort of break that down what i what i can say is that when we look at non-injured athletes that generally most of them tend to fall between plus like so bear in mind how we calculate our asymmetries is that the 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 sign sort of indicates which side is um uh generating more impulse uh so the majority of our athletes fall between sort of plus and minus 10 percent and and that if we look at them over time so let's say you had a um for the listeners out there imagine you have a horizontal line uh which represents zero percent um, and you can, and you can, you're calculating a, a five jump or a 10 jump average from each session. Uh, importantly, most of our athletes, you'll see that their, their mean asymmetry tends to kind of fluctuate above and below that zero line. So it kind of indicates that, you know, some jump tests are a little more right side dominant some are a little more left side dominant and over time they're, they're in that range. And, and, um, you know, we're, we're, and I think most people would, would agree with this is we're still struggling to, um, as a community, I think, uh, we, we obviously would love to be able to crystal ball and, and say, you know, out of a group of 20 athletes, who's the athletes at risk for injury. I mean, that would be, that would be amazing. And, and I think what everyone's realizing goes back to some of the models developed by a Canadian Winnemay Wissa is that, um, injury predictions inherently challenging because you've got, you know, factors close to the athlete, these intrinsic risk factors and external factors, and then you need an inciting event and, you know, it's, those models can be, can be tricky to, to figure out. Um, but what, what I can say is that um, if, if, if we believe that athletes should be able to solve a problem on the right side, as well as they do on their left, and that, you know, being able to, um, um, being able to um, generate <clears throat> high rates of force development, both in, in eccentric and concentric movements is important in sport, not only for performance, but also um, in the notion that, in the event of an injury situation, the only thing that's going to be able to dissipate that external energy is, is our muscles, you know, that are, that are, that are there to, to, to sort of dissipate that, that energy coming from a, from an injury situation and that our ground reaction force and jumping is sort of somewhat of an indication of, of that contribution to, to overall human movement. Um, if we, if we, if we believe that and we are sort of looking that both limbs have similar capacities um, what we find is that according to how we're calculating asymmetries is that it's, it's very, very rare for athletes to show with asymmetries that are higher than 20%. Um, and I'm talking about this non-injured group and, and by rare, I mean, you know, less than 2% of all of our jump tests, athletes present with asymmetries higher than 20%. And, and where we see that especially is in the eccentric braking or eccentric deceleration phase is how we've defined it. And I don't necessarily love that word, but um, I'll use it nonetheless. But that um, eccentric deceleration asymmetry, a threshold of 20% um, is one that not only do is that a, a sort of a rare, uh, a rare finding, it's, it's not typical that we see that, but also we have some unpublished research that we also shared in Paul's um, edition of his Aspicar Medical Journal. It's coming out in a couple months, but we shared a, a pilot study where we followed some athletes forward over a, a period of time to look at um, individuals who went on to suffer knee injuries. And we sort of identified that 20% as a meaningful threshold above which we only captured people who got hurt. Now that could be cherry picked data, you know, samples, our sample size, we were quite underpowered. Um, but Nevertheless, from an operational heuristic, 
that's uh, that might be a way to kind of contextualize um, whether or not there's um, uh, something there that's worth you know a strength coach uh, sort of pushing forward on. And and by that, I would just say to last point is that um, you know by no means like what's the issue? What what's the what's the plan here if you if you identify this well you know, you're not going to take the athlete off the field and put them in bubble wrap and, and send them into a, a hyperbaric chamber. You're going to, you know, you're going to, you know, you're going to train them, right? So you're trying to identify trainable deficits. So if I identify somebody who's got a 25% eccentric deceleration asymmetry, um, my prescription pad is exercise training, resistance training, you know, strength training that we can apply to move the needle on those things. And by all um, uh, accounts that we have in terms of my experience working with athletes is the large majority of these asymmetries are trainable. And if you have, you know, you work on, uh, you work on these, uh, these, uh, these gaps, they, they tend to, you know, restore themselves. So moving away from the non-injured athletic population to an injured athletic population, does a similar, a similar, um, notions still apply and have you got any i know like i say about the the ukca talk you spoke about this in terms yeah. of acl return to play does that right. does that still hold true or does that change the yeah whole part? It, it it does you know but i think i think kind of expanding on what what i was what i was um what we were just talking about is i've always i've always sort of looked at this process it's sort of like sherlock holmes showing up at the scene of an accident right you're you know you you know the butcher's lying on the ground you know and you want to know who killed the butcher and you're pulling out your your magnifying glass and your fingerprint kit and your dna kit and you're interviewing witnesses and you're trying to go from um observations to a, a hypothesis or an idea or a proposition for what's going on. And, 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 you know, that's a very Bayesian way of thinking, but I think it's actually how coaches kind of operate. You know, we're, we're constantly sort of evaluating movement and capacities and abilities. And then from there we're arriving at what's the game plan. What are we going to train? What are we going to work on? <clears throat> so with that said, I think in the case of uh, return to sport, um, one of the things that, that we've been talking more about is, um, not hanging our hat on any one single thing. So it's, it, you know, we're showing up to the scene of the accident and we're really going to take a broad view of the athlete and we're, tr we're trying to build somewhat of a quote unquote risk profile. And so with that said, I, I, you know, you can, you can think about an example where suppose you've got an athlete who um, is uh, 12 months post-surgery and is 5% asymmetry, but is actually quite weak on both legs. So both limbs have detrained. And you imagine another scenario where an athlete's got a, uh, you know, let's say a 16% asymmetry, but both, both limbs are really strong. So they're strong, but asymmetrical in one case and, and, and they're, and they're symmetrical, but kind of weak on in the other. And, and the question is, well, what would you prefer? You know, cause that's one way to achieve, uh, you know, quote unquote, uh, symmetry is you, you detrain the side that's stronger. And, and I think that we would all kind of pause there and say, well, yeah, that doesn't quite make sense, does it? Um, so, you know, what I, would, what I would advise when it comes to ACL return to sports scenarios or any return to sports scenario is, is take a broad, a broad approach. And that's what we try to do is we, we really do try to take a sweeping assessment of the athlete um, and we try to identify trainable deficits. And so, um, and to that end, we also consider, and this is where a lot of our research is, is uh, focused these days. Um, and, and partly, uh, I'll be honest, a lot of my influence here comes from Walter Herzog, who, again, he's been a great mentor of mine. And 
um, and somebody that I hugely respect, but Walter is all about basic muscle properties, uh, that, that affect, you know, muscle force and, and power. And, and he studies this at the, at the microscopic and submicroscopic level. And, and, and obviously, um, I'm interested in, at a, in, in, interested in this at the whole body level, but we are looking at how ACL injury impacts, you know, the, the force velocity relationship, the, the strength curve or the torque joint angle relationship. Um, we're looking at um, performance fatigue ability. So, you know, essentially when we look at our test battery, we've got about six or seven different tests that we're using, all of which we're trying to use to inform our decision-making process. And all I would say is that we've had many instances where we've had athletes who've been um, relatively symmetrical. So they've been, let's say less than 10% left versus right on a jump test, classic test that we, we often use as an indicator. But um, when you actually go through their profile, you'll find four or five things that are huge red flags. Um, we just had a case study that we published in Frontiers in Sports and Active Living, Living, and it's hopefully going to be out. I hopefully any any uh, in the next week or so. I, I'm hoping we just kind of did our final little reviews on the paper, but it's a case study on an alpine ski racer. Super interesting to note that as of the first jump test uh, or even second jump test, several of her uh, left versus right asymmetries in jumping were kind of in the you know, less than 10% zone. But when you walk through the case study and you start to really dig down, it's pretty obvious that this athlete has not recovered. And even by 18 months post-surgery, um, the biggest and most alarming thing is it's actually the non-injured limb that's detrained. So, you know, you see this kind of steady increase in the injured side. Um, and, you know, again, we're talking a year and a half after surgery, but the non-injured side, when we look at rate of force development, we look at, um, limb stiffness we look at um uh, uh, uh max uh force generated in in a, in a leg press and and in and, uh, torque in a knee extension um it's pretty obvious that you know there's there's impairment there uh trainable impairments right because if you know they're there you can train them but if all you were doing was hanging your hat on that left versus right asymmetry in a jump test you would have missed all of it and so my, my biggest thing when it comes to this idea of ACL return to sport is I think, I think it's, a great, it's a great test. Um, I think that it does um, uh, appear to be quite sensitive to the recovery process after injury, but it's certainly, in my opinion, not uh, a complete uh, appraisal of somebody's functional capacities. And so I think coaches and, and, and uh, you know, others are, are warranted to be a little bit more broad in the selection of, 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 uh, tests. And, and, and again, I say, put your Sherlock Holmes uh, hat on and, and approach the scene of the crime. Like you're trying to figure out who killed the butcher, right? So you got to really dig into the dig in, dig in and get under the hood to figure out what, what, uh, what, what the athletes trying to hide from you. So we're just going to take a very quick break in the chat with Matt. Hope you're enjoying part one. So over in part two, we actually build on last week's episode with Dave Hamilton and discuss reactive strength index. And it was uh, this conversation was off the back of an article that Matt wrote not too long ago around RSI. So we dived a little bit into uh, into how he sees RSI and whether it is a bit of a forgotten metric that has been overlooked in favor of sexier alternatives. So really interesting chat on RSI with Matt, plus some more questions via Twitter and, um, and the listeners. So thank you very much for that. So excellent part two coming up with Matt. 
But just before we do dive into part two, I want to say a big thanks to Hawking Dynamics for sponsoring this episode today. So Hawking Dynamics are the world leader in innovative force plate technology. Hawking takes a user-centric approach featuring a fully customized cloud-based software that allows users to easily digest and analyze complex force plate data. So the technology is constantly evolving, much like an app on anyone's iPhone or Android. They communicate with users on a daily basis to make their system better and better. So in addition to all that, they also offer the most competitive price for bilateral force plates on the market. And they're the only force plate company offering a completely wireless system, which is obviously a huge bonus. So in April 2020, Hawking Dynamics are hosting an educational event in St. Louis, Missouri at the prestigious Maryville University. So this event is definitely not one to miss. So it's a full two-day experience headlined by speakers like Dr. Jason Lake, who's been on the podcast before from Chichester University, Eric Renahan, who is the head of sports performance for the St. Louis Blues, Daniel Hicker, who's head of sports performance for the San Jose Earthquakes, and Lauren Green from the University of California and their sports performance analyst. So these are the leaders of force plate research and technology. So to learn more about this event, head over to the Hawking Dynamics website, which is hawkingdynamics.com. And also sponsoring this episode today is Black Box Fitness. So Black Box Fitness are a sports performance equipment manufacturer based in Belfast in Northern Ireland. So if you are looking for a full gym fit out, if you're lucky enough to be looking for a full gym fit out or just want to add additional pieces to what you've already got, whether that be barbells, dumbbells, plates, maybe a new rack, some flooring, etc., etc., have a little look at what Black Box Fitness can offer. So you can head to their website, which is blkboxfitness.com, or for a more informal view of what they do, head over to their Instagram because they've got some really cool images of some of the recent projects that they've run in Australia, in the UK, in Europe, etc. So head over to their Instagram, which is at blkboxfitness, and they're the same on Twitter. So just taking it on, or taking Martin's point on Martin's question on a, a little bit further and almost into the, the kind of jump monitoring daily readiness yeah. um, side of things and try to make decisions off the data that we're collecting. And one thing that he mm-hmm. mentioned to me was the the focus on concentric metrics versus, uh, and you mentioned eccentric, uh, eccentric deceleration um, a minute ago, mm-hmm. and what both them sides of the um the coin can tell us and why we may be looking at one over the other um isn't it that something you can elaborate on yeah no absolutely i think i think that i mean the first the first thing based on based on um based on the data that we've collected is it's pretty clear to us uh and 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 in some of the papers that we've published is that um, not only do we see that eccentric and, and, and let's just be properly sort of, so that we're properly defining this, you know, um, uh, you know, when we think about an eccentric muscle action, we're thinking about a muscle lengthening under tension, concentric muscle action muscle, you know, is, is shortening under with, with tension and, and kind of strange words that, that I don't know how sometimes the sports science and exercise physiology communities arrive at these words, but let's just say that that's the proper, you know, proper definition of, of what's happening at the muscle level. But then obviously we kind of transfer this to movement. So we would call an eccentric movement, 
one where um, energy is being absorbed by the system, you know, like in this case to, to decelerate uh, in a jump. And, and we would call a concentric movement phase where um, um, propulsion is happening. And so positive energy is being generated as the athlete pushes up and off the plate. And um, I guess the, the, you know, whether or not muscles are behaving eccentrically and concentrically in those phases, I guess we could, we could maybe, maybe uh, discuss that. But, but for, for the point of this, I mean, we break out the movement phase according to those terms and, and using those terms, I think importantly, you have how the athlete unloads. You have, and that's that's an important one, actually. I was just reading an old paper by Pavel Comey and Carmelo Bosco from the 80s. And, um, you know, it was just so interesting. One of, their, one of their figures is looking at the correlation between, you know, energy absorbed, energy produced in jumping, uh, looking at how athletes unload. And, you know, it's so funny, going right back to, you know, it's sometimes we, I feel like we're just reinventing the wheel, but uh, maybe maybe it's important for us to kind of learn these things ourselves. But uh, but anyways, you know, questions that, that I'm sure Pavel Comey and Carmelo Bosco had at the time was what characterizes great jumpers from less great jumpers. So unloading is, is really important. And, and obviously unloading is, is um, especially when it comes to return to sport, is something that we often notice is impaired. And, and so that first phase of jumping, and, and obviously I, I wouldn't necessarily uh, say that muscles are, are uh, hard. It's hard to know what muscles and tendons are doing in that unloading phase. But clearly what we'll see is uh, in, a, in a return to sports scenario is, you know, athletes are often who are often apprehensive and who are often early on in rehabilitation. What we'll notice is that their, their confidence to unload and their confidence to really you know, quickly drop in a counter movement jump can, can, can be diminished. Now we have our braking our deceleration phase where we're obviously you're reversing your downward acceleration. And, um, you know, what, what I can say about that is both in the injured athlete and in the non-injured athlete, what we see are differences, uh, between that phase of movement and the propulsive phase, which is the concentric movement of the jump. And we also see that, there's differences between sports. So our alpine skiers tend to present with a different profile than let's say our um, bobsledders. And we also see that both in the injured athlete and in the non-injured athlete, that these things uh, change with training over time. So uh, I would say in a very, and I'm pleased, hopefully no statisticians or, or friends who are really expert in statistics uh, beat me up on this, but you know, I would, I would, I would say there's that, that, that notion that it discriminates between the groups, which I think is important. Um, it's, it's sensitive in that it changes with time and with training. And, and therefore, um, I think that, um, you know, it's, it's probably warranted that, you know, we, we investigate this stuff. And um, where, where we are today is, um, and, and we, we look at a sport model where we've got alpine skiers who are largely, um, you know, if you look at alpine skiers kind of exposed to quasi-isometric, high-eccentric loading in their sport, they're kind of absorbing energy the whole way down the hill. Uh, we compare that with like a sprinter or a bobsledder who apply force in very short periods of time and, and, and are, are um, um, you know, in, in, a, in a very um, high-speed, uh, high-rate-of-force development environment. And then we compare with, let's say, an ice uh, athlete, like a speed skater, um, where they're, you know there's, there's less of a stretch short, stretch short and cycle in speed skating. There's a little bit out of the start when they're kind of coming over the first five to 10 meters. Uh, but what we see is obviously at the top end, it's a relatively slow cyclical movement. And what I can say is that, um, 
the, the impact of eccentric loading on the alpine skier certainly seems to give them um, a different profile when it comes to looking at eccentric versus concentric movement abilities and jumping. And um, where we are today is trying to tease out, um, number one, how does, how does this correlate to performance fatigability? Um, so, um, uh, where, where can we see potentially divergence between eccentric abilities and concentric abilities in, in that, in that scenario? And number two is, can we, uh, provide, can we, can we find any sort of associations between, um, eccentric versus concentric movement abilities in the jump and, and, um, and injury, um, uh, and I don't want to say injury risk, but occurrence of injuries, whether they'll be sort of chronic or, 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 or acute, non-contact lower body injuries and you know it's a struggle always right because you're trying to get enough data and to support this and injuries are complex inherently but um i think there's there's definitely some value in in going down and and separating those movement phases out from a practical standpoint so for those in in a setting where they're doing like i say daily monitoring or like a match day plus two or whatever whatever setup they've got going would that eccentric uh, deceleration phase you mentioned before that would be something they'd focus on you know i think it i think it, it i think it would be something that would be absolutely warrant warranted to, to focus on and, and it's similar to how, yeah. Yeah, yeah totally and, and similar to how we the similar to how we uh, i would suggest breaking down um various competencies abilities and capacities in the return to sports scenario i think the same is warranted for um for the, the notion of, 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 of uh, performance fatigability monitoring. I mean, at the end of the day, I love Roger Noka's uh, paper um, defining fatigue uh, using the, the phrase uh, or the, the term performance fatigability, which essentially says the impact of fatigue on performance. Um, and, and I think it's a way to kind of muddy, clear up the muddy waters around fatigue where, you know, sometimes um, these words, well, these words really do matter. So if we look at the notion of performance fatigability, where fatigue processes have impacted performance, particularly the ability to make force fast, and we're looking for a standardized and repeatable performance test, like vertical jump, um, what we see is oftentimes that the eccentric abilities and concentric abilities are differently affected by performance fatigability. So whereas you might have jump height maintained, and you know, I I, I I know some people will 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 um, will, will will not like uh, looking at mean mechanical power, but let's say others other people do. So let's say you're looking at mean mechanical power and jump height as your kind of two concentric uh, um, uh, and jump performance variables. You might actually find that um, inside the eccentric deceleration phase that there are um, changes that are occurring consequent to fatigability that warrant uh, putting them on a on a report. And so we certainly, when we look at our fatigability reports, and this goes with some of the teams that I consult with that are in, um, in uh, professional sports settings and in field sports settings, we always have a couple of eccentric abilities and, and our jump performance abilities as two, um, two, two basically um, two, two levels in our, in our, in our, uh, in our reporting. Cause certainly the, the, you know, jump performance is maintained but how you how you got to that um performance can can be can be quite different whether you're coping with fatigability or, or not one thing that might be uh, one thing that i might mention now rather than a little bit later on was a, a question that came in from callum walsh at, at huddersfield town and that was identifying identifying deceleration qualities from jump testing is that something that you've got a, an opinion on that you could share with us potentially 
Yeah, I mean, I I think that where and and, and again, I'm gonna where, where I spend. So let let me preface this: where we are currently in, engaged in um, uh, a couple of different projects. One project using machine learning, and another project using statistical parametric mapping, where we're attempting to take a little bit broader view of of the force time curves and jumping. Uh, because I think that again, you know, the the challenge here is that we tend to pigeonhole ourselves into slicing up that um, that that force time curve according to what you know what you define some some bias and and you think that you know eccentric deceleration ability and concentric abilities are important, so therefore you um, you look at them that way. Uh, but I think that both statistical parametric mapping and machine learning provide an opportunity not only to look at the vertical ground reaction force, but also the horizontal forces and the side-to-side -side forces, which I think importantly contain lots of great information. And um, I would just say that that's, that's the starting point um, that, that we're, we're taking these days with a bit more of a, a broader view and, and some more sophisticated approaches for analyzing our, our force time curves. Um, so with that said, um, that's some of our scientific inquiries, but I'm going to put a coach hat on. And so I will, I will please uh, just let, uh, you know, for the audience and whatnot, this is, uh, this is coach Matt talking. What I can tell you is that looking at force time profiles and looking at the shape of the curve. And, and I realize that this is, um, this is a coaching, coaching eye on this is that one of the things that becomes disrupted the soonest in sort of a performance fatigability uh uh, scenario is is the the shape of the curve in that eccentric deceleration phase. So we'll see both. Um, uh, whereas a lot of times that first rate of rise of force in a counter movement jump does have a pretty linear look to it. Um, very often, what we'll see in, in athletes who've got uh, performance fatigue ability is that line is, is certainly anything far from linear. It's uh, oftentimes got uh, a, uh, it's 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 bimodal. It can become um, you know very uh, sort of variable in its in its uh, in, in 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 the rate of rise of force. Um, it's it's can become curvy curvy linear. So these shapes uh, really do um, appear to arise when when athletes are, are coping with with that classic you know um, I'll say quote unquote dead leg syndrome you know where you've got what often is referred to in the literature as prolonged low frequency force depression. Um, you know calcium transients are impaired, rate of force developments impaired. Um, your high force generating ability like max force and max strength type uh, situations is, is, is relatively unaffected, but your force generation at submaximal levels of, of, um, of, of, of uh, muscle activation and also in um, high rate of force development activities become disrupted. So where very, very often that, that appears to be the case, the case when, when, when uh, I'm in a kind of a more of a coaching oriented environment. The second thing I would say is that more and more and more from a rehab standpoint, we're looking at restoring the shape of the counter movement jump uh, force time curve towards, you know, either what we understand to be sort of like characteristic of that group of athletes or, or how that athlete looked before injury. And um, this is where I think importantly, more sophisticated uh, analysis techniques are important. A lot of times the raw numbers, the output um, can sort of give you a false sense that things are back where they need to be. You know, jump heights kind of coming back within 5%. Your, your, your mean power, mechanical power is kind of back within 5%. Um, you know, um, th those sort of giving you the sense that 
the athlete is back to sort of where they need to be. But when you, when you actually break down the shape of the force time curve, and we've actually started doing that much more when we do sort of collaborative efforts for our friends out there who are dealing with um, ACL injured athletes is we'll actually put pictures of the force time curve before and after. And it's, and it's interesting to note that these, I think this is a, an important thing to consider. So um, kind of a roundabout way of saying that um, I, I think that, I think that you can, you can, you could take, more sophisticated approach to analyzing that force time curve. Um, there are variables that can quantify the rate of rise of force and also the impulse, or you can quantify the impulse in that eccentric deceleration phase. But I think that the shape of the curve really does matter. And, and uh, I think that's why I would, I would always strongly encourage coaches who are in those environments to not only be taking a look at the numbers, but become very acquainted with what those curves look like. Uh, because I think there's hidden information in there that can be valuable for decision-making. Excellent. Well, that brings me on to another next point that I wanted to that I wanted to chat about, and that was off an article that you wrote. Uh, I can't remember, maybe a couple of weeks ago, a couple of months ago, um, that was on your um, that you, you shared, and that was out uh, RSI, and it was because I'd spoke to Dave Hamilton at the at Tampa Bay uh, early in the week, and we were chatting about RSI, and I thought I'd get your. Um, thoughts on it as mm-hmm. well and it just it made me think about it I read the article and it, it was at the time I was doing the points around the the jump analysis and I thought have we moved away from something like RSI because it's maybe not as sexy as all the things we've just been speaking about for the last 45 minutes yeah. and yeah. is it still useful for people that even those people that do have the ability and the force plates mm-hmm. um, and the technology to what may look like move beyond that yeah, I think I think um, so. Um, I, I think the answer to that question is is uh, absolutely yes. Uh, I think RSI is is a great a great metric for for being able to to track both jump performance and 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 performance fatigue ability. The, the it's interesting with the with the paper that or the paper the blog post that I put out <clears throat> on that. Um, I'm working with a company in Vancouver called Plantiga and they have an accelerometer, uh, IMU in an insole and, uh, you know, wearables are, are obviously all the rage these days, but, um, you know, I always think like, how come nobody has put uh, a, a reasonable sensor inside a shoe and, 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 and by reasonable, I mean something that's not too obtrusive. It's, it's not like got wires hanging out of it that doesn't, you know, that I can actually put in a sports shoe that's snug fitting. Um, you know, and, and, and then importantly, like why has no company really capitalized on machine learning to actually capture insights? And, you know, when I met the, the, the CEO of Plantiga, Quinn Sandler, um, you know, this was early on in my asymmetry research days. And, uh, I was, um, I was very intrigued by the notion that, you know, there would be this insole that I could use not to replace necessarily my strength lab but would allow me to capture information from the field where it matters most. And um, I guess where RSI arose out of was that when you have an accelerometer in a, in a, in a, under a foot, um, the challenge is that, you know, when the foot's on the ground and you're doing, let's say, an unloading and, and break, uh, deceleration phase of a jump, there's actually no acceleration at the foot. Um, and so you really have to wait until the person kind of toes off the ground um, to be able to register that something's happening in the jump. And then obviously you get the landing, uh, the, 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 the impact when they, when they hit the ground. And so 
uh, what I'm interested in is because I'm working with injured athletes and um, uh, a lot of times athletes who are not in Calgary, they're all around the world, is getting um, a technology that allows me to evaluate performance, fatigability and readiness you know, no matter where you are in the world. And I just, I'm just very comfortable with the vertical jump as a, as a kind of a cornerstone of my monitoring platform. And it, it, it provides me insights as a coach. So I, I like it in there. Um, so the RSI kind of was always on my radar. Um, and it's always been a part of my outcome measures in our jump reports that we run from our, <clears throat> from our strength lab. But this technology and RSI are particularly well suited because you can measure flight time and, and, and the jump contraction time in consecutive counter movement jumps with that technology. Um, so it's kind of neat. And, and that's why um, I, I wrote that, that blog post is that I think RSI, when you're using that type of technology, that's, that's actually a, a metric that you can, you can extract that, that can, that can um, you know, be, be useful in those scenarios. Um, <clears throat> why I think RSI is important is obviously that when when we have so go back to Roger Noka's definition of performance fatigability is the impact of fatigue processes on performance and and what we know uh, so number one is um, not don't necessarily need to know what level of the body fatigue is occurring at but we know that performance has become impacted and and you need a standardized and repeatable test for that so you know you could I guess you could sprint or you could do a you know a, a, a bike sprint or whatever but jumping just happens to be one of the more standardized and repeatable tests that athletes can perform for us. And the issue is that when performance fatigability is present, the first thing that you're going to adjust in order to meet the um, uh, task constraints of a jump test, which is obviously jumping as high as you can, is if you spend a little longer on the ground and you um, generate more, more, do more work, generate more impulse, you can kind of maintain jump performance, um, which means that if you're just looking at jump performance, what you'd be missing in the fact is yes, it stayed the same um, in the fatigue uh, scenario, but what's changed is obviously that you're you're spending longer on the ground jumping, meaning that you, you, your your ability to make force fast maybe is is diminished. So RSI to me is just a great index to to evaluate um, how fast somebody makes force, and I think that it is. Um, if we look at the literature, it's probably the one that's been used the most, the most in the literature. I think it's, um, I think it's also one that is, um, um, you know, especially when you're using a dual force plate system is, is, uh, sufficient reliability to, to be able to identify differences in athletes that are, are meaningful. And certainly with new technologies like insoles and whatnot that are, that are, are, in, you know, in the, in the space of intelligent insoles, I think that that's a, it's a it's a nice metric to extract from that type of technology. So um, to that end, I think there's a huge there's still a lot of room for RSI, and, and it's it's actually the first metric on our it's the first metric on our our, our jump monitoring report, and um, um, also one that not only is is useful for those uh, sort of tracking uh, readiness over time, but also does distinguish athletes in some of our sports like ski racing and and speed skating, where over time it's one of the clear metrics that sort of like uh, differentiates our senior elite athletes from our developmental athletes. So why would you use that protocol over and above the alternatives for assessing RSI? The, the, which protocol? The, so the, um, rather than the, the multiple jumps, et cetera. Well, we, I mean, what we'll, what we'll normally do for, so in our strength lab, we, we usually do, um, we stick with our five counter movement jump okay, uh, sorry, protocol yeah. standard yeah. with yeah. sort of like one jump with, you know, 
five to 10 seconds in between. Um, and then we break up an RSI that includes uh, the jump contraction time, um, the concentric movement phase time, and also the eccentric deceleration uh, uh, movement time. So we look at all three time intervals and we look at, at um, flight time. And importantly, the flight time here, we calculate off the velocity body center of mass, which I've seen in the literature doesn't necessarily make a big difference whether you're using the raw flight time or the flight time of the body center of mass. But, you know, in our, we, we tighten up our, 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 um, our reliability uh, quite a bit more by using the velocity of the body center of mass as our, as our measure and then calculating the flight time off of that rather than the raw flight time. But in the scenario of the insole, which is, uh, you know, again, where, where we're trying to sort of bring this out for on the road monitoring. And, and a lot of times these athletes are, are legitimately on their own with, you know, uh, wherever they might be in the world. The consecutive counter movement jump where the athlete performs the five jumps in the road just allows us to know um, after that first jump where you don't, you know, you can't see the acceleration um, in the unloading and deceleration phase for subsequent jumps. What this company is using is a, um, a, a machine learning algorithm to detect when the foot is on and off the ground. And we can use that. It's kind of neat, actually. We can use that to determine the uh, flight time and, and jump contraction time. Um, and it just, it works better with the consecutive jumping rather than the, so we need movement to be able to make that number, uh, come to life. And, and so, um, we have a slightly different protocol in that, in that scenario than we, than we do in our strength lab for our kind of routine testing and monitoring that we're doing. Mm -hmm. So there's certain devices out there that you can test RSI with devices around the waist. What, yeah. what issues could people uh, run into when using them can devices? I think I think the you know I'm careful about this because I don't want to I don't want to you know um, I don't want to talk um, disparagingly about any technology out there that I don't know about. Um, but I'll but I'll say that the comp the 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 when I've used accelerometers that have been around the waist or sort of between the shoulder blades or sort of worn elsewhere on the body, it they just tend to be noisy. So you get a lot of move, you get more movement, more artifact. You obviously have, I mean, I can recall one company that I used to use, like the Velcro strap would either, you know, come undone or would move up and down or what have you. And anytime you just sort of inject that error into the, into the, into the, um, into the test, you're just, you're losing your ability to see the stuff that really matters. Um, so th that's the reason why I've always steered away from, uh, body borne accelerometers just because I've found them tricky to use. Um, what, what, uh, you know, what, what's nice about the accelerometer being under the foot is that the signal's quite clean because it's contained inside the shoe and, and you can use, um, you know, as, as I mentioned, uh, they're using a, a machine learning algorithm to detect truly when the foot is on and off the ground and, and just with the cleanliness of the signal, it just makes it, it's, it's just, it's a, it's a, it's a, um, a relatively good approach for that. Um, I, I, I would say from, from my experience again, is that I'm always looking for ways to, and, and I think most, uh, most of us in, in, in this sort of role would agree is you're always looking for ways to control the controllables. And certainly if I've got an athlete who's in, let's say, um, Zermatt, Switzerland in the middle of the summer doing, um, um, a four or let's say a two week camp at altitude, um, at Alpine skier, um, certainly one of the things I want to be tracking through that, um, training period is, you know, their load and I want to be monitoring performance fatigue ability. 
And the last thing I want, if I'm not there, is they throw on this accelerometer around their waist and something goes wrong with the test and something's off. And the next thing you know, I'm missing the stuff that matters. So one way to control the controllable there is I, I love the idea of having something that's in an insole, pops in your shoe. And, you know, it's the same location every time you do the test. Just one more thing that you can tighten up on and hopefully, um, you know, find those little things that matter that can make a difference. Awesome. Well, I know I've just ticked over an hour and I said that was that was going to be the limit, but just a couple, couple more questions, a couple more questions that yeah. came in on, on Twitter um, yesterday and the day before. And these may be uh, a little bit more simple than the previous ones. Um, from Matt Cave, one gym lift, if you could have one, I know this is a common, mm. I do like this question, these kind of questions. Um, yeah. One gym lift for sprinters, what would it be? Um, you know, I, I mean, I, I'm, I, I, I oftentimes go back to um, uh, trap bar clean poles, um, trap bar jump squats, and uh, variations with trap bar jump squats where I also work on eccentric deceleration ability. And, um, you know, we, we, I, we spent so much time talking about the, about the eccentric deceleration phase of jumping. That's one way that, you know, again, I'm talking case study, unpublished case study, you know, um, uh, uh, information here. So take it, take it, take it at your own risk. But one, one, one way that I mitigated, let's say an individual who has lower eccentric deceleration ability or who is presenting with something in that phase of movement that needs to be addressed is using the trap bar and using um, a breaking style movements with that breaking style movements coupled with pulls, breaking style movements coupled with jumps. And so I would go to a I'd go to a trap bar eccentric deceleration type breaking you know combination of pulls, jumps, and 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 uh, deceleration movements uh, together. Um, so I know that's kind of more than just one exercise, but it's, it's a very versatile exercise in my mind. And the other thing that I like about it is that um, we, one of the, one of my favorite tests to do is a, a load versus uh, takeoff velocity jump test and a uh, load versus eccentric deceleration impulse test. So basically we go with uh, body weight, body mass, um, and then we put on 30% and about 60% of body mass using a trap bar. And we're able to do vertical jumps with those two loads and get a takeoff velocity versus load profile and also an eccentric deceleration impulse versus load profile. And um, um, the reason I would keep that in there is that when athletes are accustomed to doing this, you can use it for monitoring too. So now you got one movement that does uh, pretty versatile eccentric deceleration ability, you know, concentric abilities addressed, and you can now um, have a really good way to monitor strength abilities through a season with a sprinter um, with one, one movement that I think is, uh, um, uh, good bang for your buck. Triple threat. Love it. Triple threat. Yeah. And last but not least, and a perfect one to finish off with book recommendations that you would recommend to your younger self. Ooh, my younger self. Um, you know, that's from Jackson Batoli, by the way. Yeah, no, no, I, I, I know Jackson and, and, um, you know, I, I appreciate that question very much because, um, um, there are, uh, there's a lot, there's a, a lot of books I could, I could go down the list on. Um, one book that I've found, and I've, I've mentioned this a couple of times I found has been really good recently, although it wouldn't have been available to me back for my younger self. Cause it's only come out recently, 
But um, I really, I've really gotten a lot out of the book of Why by Judea Pearl. Um, it's helped me kind of like um, wrap my head around a little bit, um, a bit more about, uh, what, you know, what am I trying to do? It's less about the statistics of it. Um, you know, it's a Judea Pearl's best known. He won the Turing Prize um, and, and a lot of his work was done. And, and Turing Prize is like, uh, you know, one of the big, big prizes in the area of uh, computer science and statistics. And he, um, a big, big focus of his research has been on causal inference. And I don't know, like for some reason, I think that, that this is just such a front and center issue for, um, for somebody who is in the 21st century or, you know, even back in my early days for being able to wrap your head around, um, what are you trying to do with data? And what are you trying to do in terms of answering questions? And I'm not talking about like, hey, how do I write a mixed linear model in R um, for, you know, no, I'm, I'm talking more just conceptual. You know, how do you, how do you frame up conversations and frame up a way of thinking, which is both not going to be biased one way or the other. And, and, and I really like Judea Pearl's book because he, I find it's an accessible way to think about about this topic, and and I think that for my younger self, who maybe was going to get pulled down into some rabbit holes, um, you know, get pulled down in a rabbit hole about a new supplement, a new um, technology, a new test, um, you know, quote unquote, predicting injuries, predicting performance. I think that that this might this book uh, definitely would have helped my younger self get there a little bit quicker in terms of identifying some of the issues that matter. Um, another, another book, um, the, the last name of the author is beverage, but the, the art of scientific investigation. It's another book that I, I, um, I've read numerous times and, um, I, I enjoy that book thoroughly because, you know, for somebody who's interested in making, I don't know, I mean, you know, let's face it, you know, we're not, <laughs> Uh, as a as a as a sports scientist and somebody who's working in elite sport, you know um, I'm not. Uh, it's unlikely I'll ever find a, a cure for something that changes the world, right? Hmm. But it's still the same thing. You know, you're 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 trying to you're trying to keep a broad view, and you're trying to like you know nurture your, a, a great quote by Claude Bernard. You know, you're nurturing your instincts but you're looking for facts. And then when you find facts that don't fit with your beliefs, you don't twist the facts, you, you change your beliefs. You know, like this notion that we're all sort of on this pursuit of, you know, trying to figure things out. And I know how hard that is to do, but that's the whole point of it. That, that book, The Art of Scientific Investigation, is just a great summary of how discoveries get made. And uh, in science, going back to some of the biggest ones and how many of them occurred by chance, you know, just by they were looking over here on the left for something, <laughs> but they ended up finding something on the right. Yeah. You know, it's like, you know, they, they never would have, you never would have, you didn't set out to solve what you actually ended up solving. You solved something over, you were trying to do something over here, but it actually completely unrelated. You figured something else out. And the story that Walter Herzog shares with me about his journey in science is very similar, right? He, he started out in human biomechanics and, and he started out looking at, you know, uh, sport biomechanics. And he, he basically by chance almost arrives at studying muscle. And, and then he goes down this whole world of, 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 you know, um, sort of re 
reworking in his lab uh, our understanding of the crossbridge theory, which kind of underpins our understanding of how muscles work. So it's such an amazing story. So yeah, the Art of Scientific Investigation, great book. And you know, my I, it's a book actually. I'm going to go back to a book that I I was recommended to by my grade 11 English teacher, Mr. Rancari Singh. Um, it's uh, by Albert Camus. It's called The Stranger, and that's a common. Uh, a lot, I think, a lot of people will know this book. It's um, Albert Camus is known as an existentialist writer, uh, born in Algiers, and he's French uh, background. So that uh, I'm sure Martin Boucher knows knows, knows this name, but. Uh, Albert Camus is like I don't know I, I I love his writings. He's got he's got a, um, a a bunch of great books that really make you think about life and society. He's got another book uh, called The Fall that I that I love. Um, and, I, and I honestly will read his books over and over and over again. But the reason why I like The Stranger is it helps to helps it helped me back then. And even though I was reading it for grade eleven English and I and I but I barely got the gist of it. I came back and read it many more times in, in my twenties and my thirties. And I wish I would have read it with a little bit more uh, purpose when I was in grade eleven because it you know obviously you're just writing it to reading it to to pass whatever test you gotta pass. But what I like about his writing is that it really helps you rethink and reframe some of the rules our society tells us. And helps us rethink and reframe how we think about the world and how we fit into it. Sort of that coming back to the existentialist themes in, in writing. And I, uh, I love his, I love his work. And, and, uh, but more importantly, I, I like, I like the way it sort of expand, makes, it forces me to expand how I think about the world um, from a philosophical standpoint. So there are three names, three books that I think are, are great ones. Superb. Well, thank you very much for that, mate. I really appreciate you coming on for a part two. But if anyone wants to ask you any questions, where is the best place for them to uh, to get in touch? Um, you can uh, uh, – Twitter is probably uh, a better shot than Instagram. Um, unfortunately, I, I, I'm really, really – like similar – I know you mentioned Martin's very dis, uh, discerning about how he interacts with social media. I have to be honest, like I – I don't use, I use Instagram and Twitter very much around sort of um, sharing ideas. I don't use it as a platform for communicating as much. So I would say if you are going to reach out to me on social media, Twitter's the one that I check the most. Um, Instagram is much more infrequent. Uh, definitely don't, not on Facebook Messenger. That I, I never use that at all. And then the, the other way that's probably the best is just through my website, uh, jordanstrength.com. Just send me an email through there. It's old school, but um, I, I, you know, I, I flag emails that come in, and I maybe maybe a week or two before I respond, but I always flag them, and eventually I get back to them, and and uh, and, and it's the easiest way for me to give a, a meaningful response if if there's uh, someone who has a question or, or a thought. Awesome. Well, thank you very much, Matt. Really appreciate your time again and uh, have a great rest of your day. Yeah, you too. Thanks. It's been great. Uh, always enjoy speaking with you and keep up the great work. Thanks, You've mate. Been, uh, excellent stuff. Thanks, mate. Appreciate that. Yeah. Take care. Thanks to tuning in to episode 283 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. Big thanks to Matt for coming on for a second time and giving us an unbelievable update on some of the questions that I posed four or five years ago and obviously offering new perspectives. And also big thanks to iMeasureU, Hawking Dynamics, Kitman Labs and Black Box Fitness for sponsoring this episode today. So I've got some cool guests coming up over the next couple of weeks. It's been an unbelievable couple of weeks actually um, for the podcast, speaking to some fantastic practitioners from all over the world. 
Um, so make sure you do press subscribe on your chosen podcast player. And every Thursday morning UK time, you will get a fan, hopefully a fantastic practitioner in uh, onto your phone free of charge. So thank you very much for your support, and I will chat to you next week. <laughs>